August 2022 on the Quilter on Fire podcast is an entire month of the K-Facet Collective. These four episodes will be airing while I'm actually in the UK attending the Festival of Quilts, Birmingham. For the first time, I'll be bringing you right along with me, and I'll create a recap episode the last Tuesday of August. The four members of the CAFE Facet Collective are CAFE, of course, Philip Jacobs, Liza Lucy, and today on the show, you'll meet knitwear and fabric designer Brandon Mavley. Welcome to the Quilter on Fire podcast. Hello and welcome to the Quilter on Fire podcast, sharing stories and bringing you inspiration and joy. I'm your host, Brandy Maslowski, also known as the Quilter on Fire. And today I'm talking to Brandon Mabley of the K-Facet Collective. After a chance meeting with K-Facet in the late 80s, Brandon Mabley made a radical career change from cooking to knitting and began a mentorship under CAFE that led him to running the K-Facet studio and carving out his own creative career that has lasted decades. Today, we'll chat about his story and what continues to inspire his work. Brandon, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm Brandy and I'm on fire too. <laughs> it's so nice to have you here. I have a feeling that this show is going to be full of bloopers today already. It's... Absolutely. You know, we need to make people smile. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. It's really exciting and I can't believe that we get to walk the Isles at the NEC Festival of Quilts in Birmingham. Not many people get to do that, and so we can make them jealous. Yeah, I hear that it's one of the biggest shows in the UK. I just can't wait to get there. Yeah, it, it's pretty big. I mean, it, the NEC is the National Exhibition Centre. Um, it's complete anonymous ground. It's just basically overpriced hotels and the Exhibition Centre. And um, it is amazing what's on the ex exhibition there. Plus... We're also, this is actually one of, the first, one of the first people we're going to be telling. We're going to be exhibiting all the quilts from the book that we'll be pre-launching at the Festival of Quilts called Quilts in Wales. Um, so that, yeah, that will be quite something. And that's been sponsored by uh, Rhymetex, who dispute our fabrics throughout Europe and Benina sewing machines. So lucky as. Oh, that's so exciting. Nice to start mm. off the show with a big announcement like that. Yeah, so yeah. Do, you, do you think that it's possible that you and Kafe will be making an appearance at the show then? We, yeah, we have, we're there every year. It's one of our annual dates. Um, and it's where we pre-launch or we have pre-sales of the, the brand new book. Um, so we'll be book signing there and we're literally scheduled out from one stand to another stand to another stand. Um, smiling for selfies and signing and trying to be nice. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Well, everyone will get to meet you then. That's so exciting. Yeah. Okay. So I love to start the podcast by taking a look back in time. So when did you start your creative journey? Well, when did I start? When did I start my creative journey? I mean, I've always had that um, spark of curiosity that's always been a little bit more um, alive like antennas that are never settling still always looking for um, what's new and what's moving and what's changing what's different with trends and so forth and because I didn't really do too well in school I have a level of dyslexia and I don't know some people say ADD I, to me that's all part of my creative muscle but I, meaning I 
I reason I say that is I didn't really flourish in school as well as other people did, and they bounced into university. I put that energy into going into Cajun College, and I went through the Cajun College, um, putting my creativity together with working with people. It was two things that I loved doing. Um, and from there, I went off and got my experience in London, America, and Greece. And then I came back to London and I was working for a catering agency whilst I resettled my roots. And I had this chance opportunity. I was at a bus stop. I didn't drive. I was 20 years old and I was at a bus stop. And um, there was this tall um, chap wearing a long black coat and quite good looking, but that's besides the way. And I, I was like, started speaking with him. And that turned out to be, oh, no, no, the guy said he was an artist and a, a designer. And that, of course, curiosity started to kick in because, you know, you don't meet one of those every day at a bus stop. And yeah. I didn't know who this person was. So I was like, well, you know, can you tell me more about your work? Or where's your studio? Or where can I see more of your work? Just kind of being polite as well as being curious. And he said that his studio was like two blocks away from where we were standing, and if I'm passing by, he's working on a tapestry that's going to be on the cover of one of his books, um, and just have a look. And I went down that way about a week later, and I thought, well, to hell with this, I'll just ring the doorbell. And I went in, and it was like Aladdin's cave. It was just, you know, there was kilom carpets, um, carrying the whole floor. They were fitted carpets like every normal pers person has. And there was needlepoint cushions piled at the sides of the corners of the room. And people were sitting around doing knitting and needlepoint. Um, and there was just shelvings of from floor to ceiling of spools of yarn. And I was like, it's like a Latin's cave, but <laughs> of textiles. And they reminded me of my childhood when I used to go into the local yarn shop with my mom, who's a knitter. And they used to have, you know what they used to have the big jars of candy. They're all stacked up, and then you had the rows of color. So you had the combination of the wall in the yard shop and the candy for that was behind on the on the back wall, all of the candy. So kind of that's where the children went, and the the parents went to the yard. And I felt there was that kinship. It took me back to my childhood and the candy and the candy colors and the yarn and so forth. Um, anyway, that chat. Um, happened to be Kaif, Kaif Fassett. And I, I had no idea. I'd never heard of this chap before, but because my mom used to knit, um, I went back after a while and I said, um, oh, I, well, I, I used to go around to the studio on my days off um, and uh, I, on help out and I would tidy up and cock and so forth and just make myself useful. And then after about three months, I... Um, Finally said to Keith, you know, I really want to change my career. I love what I'm doing here. I mean, I, I really feel, you know, this is where my vibe is. Can I can I come and work with you? And he's like, you know, Brandon, I do all the all the designing and I I, I don't have time to train somebody. And you know, you you haven't really got any experience in my world. And I thought, well, fair enough. And he said, Well, listen, just come on Monday, let's just see what happens. And we'll just, you know, see how it the flower opens. Um, and I came back on that Monday and we're now, what, 30, 30 years on and I'm still here. 
So, um, and that, that when I first came here, the studio was on one floor of this three and a half story house. And we now own and live in this three and a half story house, but we've run out of space. So we're <laughs> trying to buy a next door to put some of our archive in. But I, I, when I went home to one of my visits back to Wales with this small seaside town that I came from, and I said to my mum, oh, I've met this um, the, oh, this chap who does knitting. And have you heard of a guy called um, Kay Fassett? And she said, oh, um, yeah, it's the, that's the man that does all that fancy knitting with all those colours. Yeah, his work's amazing. And I said, yeah, he's a new friend of mine. I, I'm helping out at the studio. And she just glared at me, as mothers do, and she's like, Brandon, I hope you're not making a nuisance of yourself. You know, she's gone back to my school days. So, yeah, that's where I am now. So were you able to share some of your early knitwear designs with your mom? Oh, yeah, she's she's quietly admired my career um, Mm -hmm. from a distance. So... I mean, my first knitwear design didn't get published until about um, three years after being at the studio, and my name wasn't on the designs. I went under the title Cave Facet Studio, whereas Cave would be Cave Facet. But yeah. the, that studio was there wasn't anybody else. I was the only person that actually had something published as the Cave Facet Studio. Okay. So you mentioned you're from a small seaside town on the coast of South Wales. Where are you living now? And who do you share your world with every day? Um, uh, Where I'm actually sitting, speaking to you from, northwest London, in an area where West Hampstead, um, I don't know if any of our listeners are familiar with London area or so forth, and that's where the studio is. And I'm actually sitting in, looking out in the back of the house, into the garden, which is burgeoning with roses at the moment. Um, and studio is um, the rest of the house, pretty much. My my living space is this white margarine kind of magnolia box because I have a fantastic skylight above, and any sunlight would bleach out any colour. So, and also painting behind me is um, the room really responds to the painting behind me, which is one of caves early, early paintings. It was painted in 1966. Yeah. Before I was born. I I love to tell people that. You know, it's terrible when you, when you go to give your date of birth on the travel itinerary or something, you now have to scroll and scroll and scroll. (laughs) Like, Oh my God. Do I even exist? I mean, it's like, you know, we are not, they are, they now go, some people are actually born in the, 2020, 2019. I mean, like, you know, I have to scroll all the way through the 1900s to get where I am. Yeah, anyway. Um, so the painting is responding to the cave only used to paint white on white paintings when he yeah. first started off as an artist. Um, and I, I love to point this painting out because a lot of people think about colour as um, maybe a swear word or they find it quite threatening because they haven't learned to control it or manoeuvre it or work it or find their comfortable zone in working with colour. And so lots of shades of white can be quite beautiful and calming and arresting, whereas um, lots of 
high contrast colors like the t-shirt I'm wearing are more aggressive and like a high speed dance and there's a lot more energy in it. Yeah. It's just finding, you know, it's finding your place and that's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, and you live together there. And so let's just continue the story where we left off there. So two or three years after you started working as a manager there or sort of as a project I, manager? I started as a PA, just just as a personal assistant or an assistant, because I didn't have any any skills in the, right. in the sense of designing um, or working with color. But my innate sensibility of making order, and also because I wasn't intimidated by Cave's world, or I didn't know who Cave was, I just spoke what I felt. And Cave yeah. recognized that as something in me that um, he felt could be nurtured or encouraged. Um, and I also found that, you know, nobody could be Cave. There is only, only one Cave, whereas I could find my own voice as well as, you know, um, it, there's something very empowering to be able to collaborate with somebody. And so to be able to ask somebody a second opinion, and if you don't like their their opinion, that's a healthy thing because it reinforces what you're feeling and then move forward with that. So we, Kate um, would say, just cast on. This is what I'll show you. Just cast on 30 stitches. I'd end up with 130 stitches, but you know, <laughs> but my attention span is about this long. It's about two inches long. I get bored very, very quickly. And so by using different colors, I'd be kept intrigued because you'd see different color balances coming in. I mean, for me to sit down and knit one color sweater, it's it's not gonna happen. Yeah. Um, or or to do with do something when I'm doing colorways or my fabrics or working with a cat a limited color palette uh, or when I'm cooking, you know, I, it just is an innate thing for me to put in a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, and it's none of it is pre-planned either. It annoys people immensely because they love to be able to get in our heads and have it see the picture. But actually a lot of our work is instinctive and it's a building and a feeling process yeah. as we go along. Yeah. And, and before we sort of move completely away from the cooking part of things, before you made that transition, you mentioned to me in our discovery call that you were a private cook to the British ambassador to Greece. So what was that like? Yeah, that's a secret. No, no I told you. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, um, I basically had a friend who was working down in Greece as a, a teacher. And I said to him, um, ah, put in an advert in the newspaper for me. Anybody looking for a private chef? Ha ha. And he, he forgot that I said ha ha. And he, and he went and did it. And my mom got a telephone call. Um, I was working in London at a restaurant. And my mom for me said, Brandon, a lady Myers, the British ambassador's wife, has just called from Athens, Greece, asking for your resume. What are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. So, yeah, I was like, and so I went off for an interview and they liked what I, I had to say. And I'm, um, I think I had two interviews and then I was flown down to Athens and I was living with them. I won't say for a short period of time because it, it, I realized quite quickly I didn't have the experience um, that they were looking for. So I, I did the right thing by resigning and moving on. And I ran a restaurant on one of the islands 
for this summer and worked my way out of that, came back to the UK. And then it was not long after that that I had the chance meeting with his lordship. And, yeah. <laughs> His Lordship of Color. And one interesting thing I find is that when you make a transition, sometimes you dive in head first. And if you don't have a history of knowing the quilting world or the knitwear world or the embroidery world, maybe you can come in with a fresh perspective, right? Yeah, so- absolutely. You, you haven't got those boundaries that are already stuck. There's no boundaries. You just go and you build your boundaries when you start learning. And so the least amount of experience you have the more open you are to experiences. Um, And I always find when I have somebody in the class and they say, oh, you can't do this. And I say, wait, you have more experience than our lovely friend next to you that has got all these degrees and, you know, and and she's had all this experience. That is putting up walls that she has to get over to where I'm trying to get her to. You have no horizon. You're going to make your own horizon. And how exciting is that? So basically what I'm doing is I'm sharing with people through the class we give exactly the same place as I came from as somebody who, where I am now. I'm not somewhere or somebody that's come to where I am through education, through a higher education. I've come to where I am through having a go and being prepared to learn by my mistakes. I mean, one of the things that I learned is Mistakes leave room for opportunities. And that's, you know, I should have had that written on my forehead because that's, you know, that is my underlying sentence. Okay, so you were a project assistant for a while for CAFE and it became kind of a mentorship. So did you start with needlepoint and then learn to knit later or how did you get started? Yeah, very, very, very perceptive. I was needlepoint and... Kate had just come out with a book called Glorious Inspirations, which is a fantastic book. It's out of print now, but it was a book on just looking at inspiration that he collected through um, the art world. And it was basically showed people how you can take an inspiration and just play with it in your own way. And in there, there was a little uh, mosaic of a robin, a bird on a branch. And so he... Um, told me to draw that out on a piece of canvas with a waterproof mark pen, take the colours from the painting in the book and start stitching those colours. But don't try and replicate the picture, replicate the colours and just get a feeling of building that um, colour story and then you'll get at ease with um, doing the stitching. And it was a very simple half-cross stitching. Yeah, and the way I went with it. Yeah. And I'm really interested in your mom because you mentioned that she was a knitter. And I just, do you remember the first time you showed her something that you had actually knit yourself? Uh, the first thing actually she saw of mine was a needlepoint. And I was needlepointing a cushion for her as a gift. And she came to visit me and I was staying in my, do you have bed sits in Canada, in Canada or what do you call it, studio flat? Yeah. And in the corner of my room was a tall wardrobe, and she saw a single thread of tapestry yarn hanging out of the door. And she was like, what is that? <laughs> like it was a, gar- a bird going after a garden worm. And that was like, I mean, she has a hawk eye if ever there was. Her birthday is a bo- uh, day of the fine appearance. She has an amazing eye for detail. And she ran over to the wardrobe and wrenched to open the door and out 
fell, this needlepoint cushion. And I was so mad at her because she spoiled the surprise that I was stitching. And that was a, a needlepoint cushion um, that Kate had done. And I was doing this kit for her. I was so proud of myself and she battered it. <laughs> but yeah, there you go. Oh, she must have loved uh, it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then um, the knitting act that, well, I always shared different projects and uh, different bands. And uh, quite often she was nicely surprised. She's never been somebody who's got out the buntings and the flags and the horn and say, do, 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 do. look at my boy, he's been fabulous. She would quietly say, that's well done, Brandon. And so, yeah, um, it, it's very nice. So when she gives me praise, it has much more residue than somebody that's kind of, um, you know, she won't go around the supermarket telling people, do you know, have you, do you have got any idea? Yeah. If she's wearing something of mine and people come up to her and say, I love your cardigan, and she said, well, my son made it or my son designed it. And um, that's quite nice. But yeah, it won't go any further than that. Oh, she must be so proud. It must be nice to go from, are you in trouble to, my son made this. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's a nice yeah, transition for her. Yeah, what was uh, adorable, one of the first uh, knit book I did called Brilliant Knits, I didn't put the title on it, it was a publisher did. And anyway, I didn't have a big budget for models, so I took my twin sister into doing a little bit of modelling for us. And lo and behold, they ended up choosing one of the images that she modelled on the cover. And my mom was one of the models in the book too, which I'm very proud of too, because she just looks very natural and um, just swoons, glows with love. Anyway, when my sister learned that she's going to be on the cover of the book, she's like, how do I cope with fame? <laughs> just adorable. Yeah. So. Oh, that's sweet. Okay, so this can be a difficult question for some creatives because often they have so many talents. So if someone were to ask you what you do for a living or what you call yourself, what would you say? Well, if I'm doing rag rugs, I tell them I'm a hooker. You know, I was just down in Spain on vacation and people, and of course, people always want to put a label on you. And I hate labels. And so like, what do you do um, for, what you know, what's your profession? And so I say I play, I put arrangements of colour together in lots of different mediums. And so if they want to go down that rabbit hole or track, then I'll explain more. Yeah, that's so great. So I'm interested in just sort of give us a glimpse of what it was like in the early days of the studio. We had six people working here um, five days a week, and they would come in um, about 9.30 and leave or leave about 4 4.30 and Keith would create different projects for them to make up the samples and he would guide them on, he'd draw out and then the um, draw, say if it were needlepoint for a needlepoint kit, which will, we always make up the first sample. So he would draw up the first design and the inspiration and then he would work with them and choose the colours and he'd work with them on where they would stitch up the pieces they would be sitting on the floor on needlepoint cushions, as would all the other people. Constantly, there's a radio station playing here called Radio 4. I always say to people, there's three in the marriage here. There's Cave, myself, and Radio 4. <laughs> and I can only speak to Cave depending on what's on the radio, you know, in between programs. 
But um, yeah, and he dedicated one of his books to the radio station. Um, and so they, they all had their different skills and they'd all come from different backgrounds and they were different age groups too. For instance, we had one chap working here. He was Scottish and he was from a certain level in the army. And one of his claims to fame was that he was chosen to dance with the Queen um, at some inaugural ball and he was wearing his kilt. But before he danced with the Queen, he was asked to put his underwear on. So, (laughs) yeah. And anyway, he retired and um, he didn't know what to do with this himself. And so he phoned Kaif up. He knew Kaif and phoned him up and said, can I just come and sit in the studio? And Kaif gave him some needlepoint. He'd never needlepointed before. And he showed him how to do a needlepoint. And the guy just flourished and just, you know, just became an absolute natural. And so he used to help Kaif a lot with these amazing needlepoint chairs. So a lot of the one-of-a-kind pieces that came from the studio would have been executed by this chap who sadly passed last this last year. Um, and so my role coming in and being around them, it was just very natural because they were very friendly and conversations would be around the radio. It was a good play on and they'd be stitching on that. Or um, part of the design process we have is you have to constantly pin up your work. So every new colour you put in, whatever medium you're working on, and um, because we were making the first sample, you have to pin it on the wall, stand back, and look at it from a distance. And so there will be a lot of movement too, um, of people coming and going. We were all in one room, and one large room, which is about 15 foot um, with 13 foot high ceilings, very good natural light. Um, and then you'd have huge baskets of yarn and types of yarn around you. And at that time, when I first came to the studio, there was um, we were doing needlepoint, knitting, um, painting, or Kate was doing paintings for clients, um, and then working on photo shoots and some teaching. Okay. Okay, so gradually along the way, obviously, you learned to do the needlepoint and move into knitwear design. When did you actually start designing? Was it with um, needlepoint or was it with knitwear that you started designing things? Um, the knitting and the needlepoint, I started designing at the same time. But my first knitwear was published in Rowan magazine number 13. For anybody that's out there and that's a, a, an avid Rowan collector, and it was a two-color row um, fair isle pattern, but it was a mixture of fair isle and tarsia actually. And it was a design called Great Plains. And uh, basically, I'd seen in one of Kate's books a watercolor of an Indian basket, and you had um, chevron stripes of light, dark, light, dark, light, dark, and they were just in stripes. And I thought, well that would be quite easy to take a combination of colours and put the dark colours in the dark sector stripes and the light colours on the light side. So I just sat down and knit them. It was very straightforward. Part of the thing about doing caves patterns or style of knitting, you have to learn the basic technique first. A lot of knitters think, I can never cope with that because I don't know how to do the technique. Well, it's like, reversing a car you learn to reverse your car when you learn to drive if you don't you'll never get it or you'll always park badly 
um, parallel parking that is. And so, and if anybody listening to this, if they want to get my technique, just put my name into YouTube. And I think that's the only thing that will come up is there's a demo that I'm doing or showing you how to do the technique. And so, yeah, and I did that and it was a huge success. I took 12 colors, six lighter shades and six darker shades. And it was very earthy tones. Um, and it's actually at the, at the garment is very much today's color. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. Yeah. And the Rowan website today is fully featured with you on the cover. When you type in Brandon Mabley and the Rowan website comes up, there's this gorgeous sweater that has these crosses on it and it's Navy cross. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. That's called don't make me cross. (laughs) That's a great name for a design. (laughs) I've done this other garment, which I'm really pleased with. And it just, all of the design in large letters, it says, I am, I am, I am. I think it's a mega mantra for ladies to say to themselves and repeat after yourself, I am, I am. So I, I just want to see a whole plethora of ladies walking down the street wearing that design. Yeah, and it kind of really means a different thing to each person, but it really means I am whatever I want to be, right? I, I am who I am, yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, and tell me about your latest post on your Facebook page. It's a checkerboard, black and white, but also in color. So what what were those designs inspired by? Okay, yeah, quite simply. You know, Rowan Yarns send up in advance, I, I think about eight months in advance, to when government's published, maybe it's a year in advance, they'll send through a storyboard of images that they want their team of designers to take an inspiration out of one of the pictures. And um, so the two designs are from two different collections. And one design in the storyboard had a lot of black and whites. And Kate is a crossword junkie. Every evening he has to sit down and do a crossword puzzle. And, of course, that inspiration came from me looking at this storyboard of there was a lot of black and white images in the design. And I thought, well, well, how great to see somebody in a design that is of a crossword puzzle. So I did that as a black and white, because black and white also is very friendly. And I gave it a cropped Bargello shape, so it's kind of like a little bit like Chanel. Um, And so it could be worn classy to the evening, or you could go... Skipping down to the mall to buy yourself a new pair of Jimmy shoes, shoes. Um, and then the other design, as the storyboard, actually there wasn't a storyboard. We had to come up with a design that was under the heading "Jolly." What made us? No, joy. What made us feel joy? And for me, color. What well, I mean, hello. And so I just thought, you know, to when I opened my watercolor box and I have all those little squares of color and I thought why not do a very simple shape of just those colors um, in little squares of jolly colors and outline them in a black and so I did this garment that is just jolly colors I call it jolly yeah yeah oh that sounds good and so if you mentioned that you know Kaif is fanatical about crosswords what would it be that you're fanatical about I think you better ask him. I, I, don't, I don't know about myself. Who am I? I don't know. Um, you know, I find it very hard to sit still. So I, I'm 
in the kitchen, I'm picking up fabric that caves cut or I'm stitching on something in the shawl. So I'm a little, I can be, I suppose I could be quite annoying if you want to just sit still. And even when I'm in front of the television, I've got to be playing with something. I don't know if that's a fault or a plus, but maybe that's the most annoying thing. about. I don't, yeah, sorry, pass. You probably come across as pleasantly annoying. And then if you left, you'd be sorely missed, right? Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, should we say I might have left an impression? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, good. So, um, so how long have you been designing knitwear? And did you make a transition to fabric design? Or, or have you always kind of done both? When did the fabric no, well, come into play? Um, how long have I been designing knitwear versus fabric? Um, well, I'll have to do a bit of arithmetic here. I've been at the studio over 30 years. I joined KFIN in 1990. My first design got published about 1993. I, I have three knitbooks under my name, and I must have worked on over 25 books, 30 books with KFIN. KFIN has over 60 books to his name. Uh-huh. Um and so I don't need to have my name on the cover because it's case case name that people are will pick the book up for. And so and the man that you know is chewing the cog. This might be jumping ahead with one of your questions, but how we got into fabric is that um, Oxfam asked Kate was asked to go to India with a charity to look at possible helping with ideas that could be more marketable in the West. And there was a, a bunch of different celebrity type people that were taken up, like different journalists and so forth, by this charity. And one of the organizations Kate was taken to was Oxfam, which is this international charity. And they were like, You're the type of person that we need to come back and really do some work, you know, help some of our poverty stricken villages. So Kate and I were asked to go back and work with a leper village which was no problem for us. And if they felt it was safe, we were quite happy to go. But on the way, we stopped off at a village that um, struggled with um, getting back off their feet after a cyclone and a tidal wave in the area of Tamil Nadu in southern India. And um, we were staying in a break for centre and we stayed there for 10 days. And they basically had stick huts where they'd had sticks, they put them in the, in the soil, and they put bamboo leaves on their roofs, and that was home for them. We sit in a Red Cross Centre, and um, they basically specialise in doing pit looming. So they would sit at the edge of a pit, and they'd put sticks across to make a balloon, and they, it was as basic as basic could be. And um, we've looked at the colours. The colours were just terrible. Um, oh, prior to that, Kayford sent to Oxfam a series of knitted stripes. He, he put together a sequence of stripes for them to try weaving. And when we got to the village, we found they, they had caves knitting, but they didn't have the yarns to weave. So we went and had the yarns dyed, and then we went back to the village and we sat and had uh, them weave a lengths of weaving for Oxfam to then put into ideas like, um, bathrobes and placemats and so forth. Well, Oxfam are not a marketing agency, and it, the the project fell on its ground 
So we went back about four years later and took the project off them and gave it to our distributors in America who were doing distributing the yarn for Rowan Yarns and said, listen, this, this, you've got to have these guys. This is a great idea. And they're like, well, we don't know what to do with it. And we're like, well, if you give the fabric to some already established quilters and see what they do with it, and we'll also do some ideas, and then let's see how the ball will start rolling. So we gave the fabric to people like Karen Stone, who's known in the industry, um, and others, and it just went, it was like putting a, a match on Tinder. It just flew, it, you know, it just wow. went out of ballpark. So, um, and that fabric is still available. We still work with different um, distributors in India. It has to be done at a Somebody that can cope with different, um, producing higher quantities, obviously. But um, we, we absolutely love, love, love what they do for us. And then on top of that, we started doing the, um, the painted fabrics. The, we started doing artwork that was going to, it was going to Japan, but then it now goes to Korea. And so we sent it to America, and it goes out to Korea and comes back to us to play with. But um, what's weird is when we do our fabric, now we're just literally half an hour ago, I was upstairs painting out designs that will go off to America in a couple of weeks. We won't see those fabrics for 18 months, <laughs> 18 months. That's when they come out in the shops. I mean, it's wow. a killer. So it's no wonder I don't have any hair. <laughs> And so you got into fabric design and it's just so great to see the color and everything that you guys are doing going from embroidery to knitwear to fabric design. Did you get into quilting as well at any point? Have you ever made a quilt before? Oh yeah. And, and before this, no, no, okay. no. It, um, it, uh, we, we bought quilts, we bought old quilts. And you know, what was interesting was, if you look at a lot of our early knitwear, they were inspired by old patchwork quilts. Mm -hmm. We're not interested really in contemporary. We're still not really interested in contemporary. It was the, it's the old um, geometric structures that were feeding our imagination for knitwear. And yeah. so that we were always looking. We have bookshelves of old patchwork quilts, boring colours, brown and cream and Oh, my goodness gracious. You know, <laughs> it was like, but, you know, when we came into this world, um, everybody was in love with Debbie Mum and mm -hmm. Thimbleberry. And, you know, we must have scared the hell out of those <laughs> dear old, and then suddenly we were serving them big fat roses and, you know, overblown cabbages and like, what the hell am I going to do with this? <laughs> But, um, you know, and that was that fun thing about it. It was when you cut it up, it becomes an abstract. Yeah. Uh, and so, no, everybody wants to know, did you sit and knit like yourself? Did you sit and stitch like yourself? Our attention goes into, well, well, for one, when we design on knitting, we'll knit up enough of a repeat and then and give a basic um, a graph pattern. That then goes off to somebody who's going to put that into a book. So the person will, somebody will painstakingly re-knit that swatch into a repeat pattern and also graph it at the same time, which is the very important part. And that's not what really lifts our skirt. That's not what gets our attention. So that goes off to our lovely makers 
And, you know, I really bless them, but our energy goes into where it's best used up, and that's in creating the whole arrangement, and then somebody else can do the theoretical part where they sit down and um, make it. Yeah, not, so- not to say that we haven't sewn, we haven't knitted whole garments, we haven't made whole cushions, or or yeah. we haven't made quilts. We have, but you know, it's not our what is not what puts our flame under us. No, and that's great. I mean, the design is the work that you're doing, and it the world has been changed by your design. Especially the quilting world has been absolutely guided in many directions by your design. So, let's talk about those three books you mentioned. You said you have three knitwear books under your belt. So, how did it feel to have the first book in your hands after it was published? Um, I shed a tear when I gave it to my mom. Yeah, that was right. Yeah, that's so great. It's it's nice to have that accomplishment under your belt, right? And then it feels like well, the sky has I, opened up. I want, but I think my teachers would have been shocked. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's a common thing. I think sometimes when children or teens aren't doing well in school, it's because they have a different kind of learning style or an entrepreneurial spirit. Well, doing also doing books, there um, people have no idea what the process goes into behind the scenes. One with a knitbook, for instance, one making the samples. Two, um, once you've given, birth, you know, you've done all your, you do your design work, you're making up the samples, which is a lot, a lot of work. Then you do your graphs. Then you go out and you work with a photographer and style it. Then you sit down and write the book after that. Then you work with a layout person on, if you're lucky, depending on your publisher, if you're lucky on how much they'll have in their artistic presentation of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, not every um, artist, shall I say, has a generous author that will let you see through your vision. Um, mm-hmm. Fortunately, I did. Um, and I got the book to where, where I wanted it to be for the first book. And then um, the second book, that was done in the UK. And a lot of the compliments I had on that was um, people loved how natural the book looks and also how natural the models looked, um, which was great. I chose my photographer. I styled the garments myself. So I had the garments shot where I wanted them um, in the English countryside. So it had a a very natural feel. And then um, the second book was done in New York. And we shot that in the Meek Packing District. Um, and that was called. Well, was it Knitting Color? Yeah. Design inspiration from around the world? That's me. <laughs> and there's a gorgeous knitwear on the cover. It's like yeah. a beautiful coat, uh, but it's yeah. almost it's almost cape-like. It's gorgeous. It, it was inspired by Uluru in Australia. And that was the, um, and I, I like that kimono shape because I've been, I think it's very forgiving for a lot of knitters. Mm-hmm. So it accommodates any, anything anybody ha- needs to accommodate, including a loaf of bread. <laughs> okay, that's great. And so let's talk about the third book, Knitting yeah. with the Color Guys. And so this is a, this is a book that with a collaboration with a chap called Cave Facet. <laughs> and it was showing our own unique styles of knitwear designs, but it was also for knitted samples that were 
without armholes. So it, it was throws, wraps, scarves, gloves, leg warmers. And it was just playing with sheets of pattern in our own way, but not that wouldn't be too intimidating. Yeah. And so it was a mirage of different, um, and it was great. It was great fun. And, and Cave completely did his own thing as I did my own thing. And then we went up with our chosen photographer and just played. And it was, I think the book has a lot of humor too. Yeah. Um, in, a, in a humble way. Because I don't want people to be intimidated by the arrangements of color that we're putting out. I think I want them to have go make it their own. So, yeah. Yeah. So gorgeous. I really love it. Okay. And so from there, there was another transition from everything that you were doing already into quilting books. So this is where the Cave Facet Collective starts to sort of form and Liza comes along. And so when did you guys start getting into the books with quilting? Well, Liza Pryor Lucy was the one that really um, got Cave entangled in. She cast out her fishing line and hooked cave in by she wanted to do a, a quilting book herself and from what I understand is that she got rejected by different publishers you never know with the publishing world yeah. and her husband said you need a hook line to sink somebody in that's really already established and it's also good for color and she said well who do you know who do we know and she said well ask Jesus I mean <laughs> ask cave you know, and she, of course, her and Cave were connected through, she was a yarn rep for knitting yarns, and they started selling, um had started selling our Indian striped woven fabrics. And she phoned Cave up. We didn't have internet in those days. It was fax machines. Can you, do you remember those fax, fax machines? Um, fax machines and telephone wires. And anyway, she phoned Cave up and she said, you know, I've retired as a sales yarn rep and I'm getting into patchwork. Okay, so like, oh, well, that's a great shame. You know, I, I, what do you want to do that for? <laughs> and, and she's like, you have no idea how much fun this world is. And Kate's like, you know, I don't, have, I don't have any time to do anything else than what I'm doing now. I'm teaching, I'm traveling the world, I'm doing yarn and knitting. And, you know, I've got a television schedule going on. I don't have time. So Liza, being clever Liza, started taking his knitting patterns that were inspired by Patrick Quilts, knowingly doing them in bad colours just to get his attention <laughs> and then sending them in blocks. And then so what do you think? Give me your opinion. And he'd say, he'd turn them back, or turn them back saying, change this colour, change that colour. And he's like, wait a minute, I kind of like this. And so Liza said, okay, Mr. Big, how about you start doing your own fabrics? Because Kate used to design fabrics. He doesn't talk about them this much at all. Um, he, used to, he, he and an artist called Howard Hodgkins were the two artists that inspired Trisha Guild to move into colour. That is Designers Guild. And so for those who don't know Designers Guild, it's one of the world-renowned furnished in fabric houses. And Trish Guild, who is the founder of the Science Guild, she credits Kaif and Howard Hodgkins for bringing her into the world of colour and scale. 
And that's mega. I mean, that's mega. It, you know, I think that's profound. And yeah. um, for some, uh, Kay forgets to talk about that kind of part of his life, but that was going on with his, his knitting career. Um, back when he was doing the knitting needlepoint, he was doing huge, fabulous fabric ranges for um, hand-painted fabric um, designs for alone, really large-scale roses this size on fabric. They were amazing. Anyway, so Eliza said, why didn't you start doing fabrics for painting designs for fabrics? And he's like, well, okay, let's just talk with Westminster, see if they're interested in it and so forth. So the seeds started getting planted and then Cave realised that if he did the collection, it wasn't enough on his own. What he loves is variety. And with the quilts that he wants, he wanted to go to charity shops and buy little bits from here and flea markets and there, there. But if we're going to do that for a commercial way, we need to bring in other artists. And he thought, well, who else does fabrics that I love the scale of and the prints? And he recalled somebody he, he knew back in the 80s called Philip Jacob. And he used to go and see Philip's work and slideshows. And he also used to meet Philip at this meditation centre, their worlds will cross. Otherwise, we really don't know Philip that well. Um, but Keith said, would well, you design a range? And Philip was like, well, I don't really do colours. You know, I'm not interested in doing colours. That's not my thing. And um, because when you look at Philip's paintings, they're very technical, very detailed. And that's where Philip gets his stimulation, where colour mixing isn't his bag. So Keith said, well, great. Give me your artwork and I will do the colourways on them. So people don't actually see Philip's original colorways. They only get Cave's color combinations. And so that started mixing, going out into the world in the early days. And then um, the lady that was the head of Westminster Fibers, who were originally doing our fabrics in the very early days, and people will see that on the early fabric salvage, it was Kate Fassett, Westminster Fibers. She used to say, Brandon, when are you going to start doing the range? And I thought, you know, Let's just feel the water. Let's just see how Keith and Philip are finding it in their way. And I think it was maybe about three years in, four years in, then I did my first range. Um, and subsequently, some fabrics from the very early range, I'm bringing back out as new colorways um, for the next collection that you'll be seeing for me. One of the designs was called Fish Lips. Fish lips. <laughs> Are you there? What do you think? Fish lips? Well, when you, when you look at fish when they're breathing, you're... and so <laughs> I did these primitive oval circles with a primitive outline and call them fish lips. <laughs> so I miss the fish lips, if you, if you like. Oh, that's pretty funny. Well, that, and that's great. And so the collective started to form and there are these four people involved. So we've got Kaif, who is the color. You are one of the designers and Philip does original design as well, which then becomes colored by Kaif. And then Liza kind of came in as the quilting element, right? Yeah. Liza really is our manager. We turned to her for all um she watches our back because uh, there's so much politics that goes on behind the scenes on. If something doesn't sell, it gets dropped. If we're using it in a book and we're thinking 18 months ahead, you know, there's an enormous amount of juggling and weighing up and down. 
you know, the industry, people in the shops have no idea what goes on behind the scene. And Liza is amazing beyond amazing. And we wouldn't be where we are without Liza. So mm-hmm. um, I speak to Liza, I would say, daily on FaceTime, just to see what she looks like at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> oh, bless you. I love you, Liza. Um, no, uh, thank goodness she's not vain. Because um, she gets up at five in the morning, so I can, you know, and here in England it's ten or eleven thirty, and we have a problem. We, where are you, Liza? Come on, Liza, we need to talk to you. Um, and so, so Keith and I will do the design work. Um, Liza is looking after the quality control, and she's go between between ourselves and Free Spirits that are down in Charlotte, North Carolina, mm-hmm. and they're the people that distribute our fabric. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. And Free Spirit's doing a giveaway with each of these K-Facet Collective interviews that I'm doing. So that's going to be a wonderful. They've oh, come wow. together to give us a nice giveaway. So going back to your world with CAFE and, and some of the traveling and things you do, can you give us an idea what it's like behind the scenes at some of CAFE's biggest shows, like the Victorian Albert Museum, like when it opened, like I heard stories that it was such a big show that it was opened by the Royal Ballet. Um, there's a very nice story about how Princess Michael helped him get the exhibition or got him the exhibition at oh, the nice. Victoria Museum. And it broke, the exhibition broke all his record attendance. I don't want to sound like we're blowing our own home, but it always seems to be that whenever we have a show, it breaks record attendance for museums. And it just kills me that more places don't pay attention to, you know, working with your hands and colour. And yes, we do a number. We don't just give them the work and say display. We always say how we want it styled and we want colours behind the walls and, you know, we work with the layout people and so forth. So we very much see the the work right throughout. But whenever we have a show, I mean, we have a show opening at the Fashion Textile Museum here in central London in September. And they asked us to come back because it broke their attendance records um, what four years back, I think it was. And so we're having a, a nine-month exhibition with them this time. And so, and then that exhibition will travel to Scotland and then to Sweden. So, yeah, it's there are a lot of work because yeah, there's a lot of preparation beforehand and getting the details together and getting them to do their marketing is another thing too. And then it's high pressure when you come to put up the show and usually it's, well, it's very much Cape myself. Um, and then the creative team that's on hand at their end. And it's usually once the show is open and running, we just let it do its thing. And if they ask for an event, like a, a lecture or something, then we'll try and encourage them to give us a place where we can attract the largest audience as possible. Yeah. Um, so can you give us an idea of what is in the show? Like, has he always done shows that are either knitwear or embroidery or has he done combination shows? Yeah, usually the mixed medium. Um, and the exhibition that, the, well, for instance, the one that's opening up Fashion Textile Museum, we've invited 30 different artists from around the world that use our fabric, but in their own unique style. And we're putting pieces of their work in this exhibition. So it will be to show people how other people use our fabric. Because 
for instance, somebody will look at that fabric and go, OMG, well, how do I use it? Yeah. You know, well, it's like, cut it up, honey, um, <laughs> and use it. And so this is, you know, there'll be fabulous dresses. There's a ball gown that's covered in embroidered flowers. There's quilt by a couple of quilts from Cathy Doughty, Material Obsession Sydney, Australia. There's uh, Kim McLean, amazing applicator. There's Danny Amazeas, who does the most extraordinary fabric collages. And yeah, it goes on. So there's that. So it's going to be all about their work. Plus, it'll be injected. There'll be my work, caves, lizers in there. Um, there'll be a huge section of Philip's caves and my original painted artwork, along with pieces of fabric. So people will be able to see Philip's original, mm-hmm. Wama Palooza's OMG, so gorgeous original artwork that nobody ever gets to see. And then you'll get to see Caves colorways beside that, which I think is going to be the real showstopper of the show. Yeah, that sounds really good. And so yeah. once a show like that opens, can you just hide out behind the scenes or do you have to do front and center encountering the public type of stuff? No, we hide. No, <laughs> hide. We, got, we got work to do. You know, once you give birth to the baby, you've got to... Now, we had a show with one friend uh, a couple of years back in down the Victoria Gallery's bath, and she went there every day and just lapped up the attention. And they were like, no, no. <laughs> do no, you- we'll do, we'll, we'll do organised book signings. The selfies we're really tired of, yeah. Yeah, I bet that can become tiresome. So do you sometimes get recognised in public and have to deal with the paparazzi? And we sometimes, yeah, you know, um, quite often, oh, like down in Spain when I was just on vacation, there was three different occasions. There's a shot, just happened to be a shot that sells our fabric, and the woman looked up and went, had a blank face, and then went, ha! There was another lady at breakfast, the buffet breakfast, and she said something about, we were just going to talking, and she said something about Cullen, and her sister, was she, she was with, said, oh, Oh, yeah, she's the quilting queen. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And so have you heard, do you know the name Kate Fashion? She said, oh, my God, he's <laughs> working. Like, I'm like, yeah, I'm Brandon. And she, like, just dropped her knife and fork on the floor. <laughs> and it was really sweet. And then she couldn't speak to me for the rest of the time. She was, like, trying to find things to say. And it's like, honey, you put on your swimsuit. Girl, just go for a swim, you know. Oh, it's that's cute. funny. So what do you think it is that really affects quilters about what the K-Facet Collective brings together with fabric? Like, what is it? What's it the takes thing? Them, you know what? It takes them to a place they didn't think they had it in themselves to achieve. And that's really my mission is we are missionaries for colour and trying to help people get over this fear of putting together color combinations that they didn't think they had it in themselves to do. And, you know, I have the, I have this, um, well, Kate consider, consider it a boring saying, but no color sits alone. Every color is affected by what you put it next to. And so when you put an orange next to red, it has a fizz, but it depends on the intensity of that orange, that orange or how much of that orange and, you know, the vibration you get from that. And then if you do that for yourself, it's like, wow. So it's like following an apple pie recipe from Sara Lee. You know, you can do it exactly the same way as they do it. Or 
you can turn a little bit of your own personality and you know know that was your own voice going in there and there is nothing more empowering than the workshops we do because it's like we've planted that little seed and seeing them flourish and grow um, and once you're in there you know you're you're stuck you're gonna keep on growing you know, once you start playing with color no looking back you know it's never predictable it's never something you can work out on a piece of paper or you've got to literally do it and also when you're working with your hands too there's something very um centering about that isn't there yeah it's very methodical yeah it really is one of the highest one of the most rewarding experiences i've had working with cave were in the early days working with cave we were asked cave and i were asked to go in to work in high security prisons with lifers and, and sex offenders who are allowed to do needlepoint in their cells while they're locked away for their 22 hours or 23 hours. And there's a charity called Fine Cell Work. It has an international reputation. You can Google it called Fine Cell Work. CAFE's a patron of the charity now, and it encourages men and women to, they do patchwork and they do needlepoint. And the charity sells the work for them. Oh, nice. And it's um, about going into the high security prisons and working with them was, yeah, just, it was amazing. It was just amazing. Because, you, you know, there's no point of return for these guys, but they really found something, something else in themselves because they were sitting down doing this, um, you know, very centering, calming thing rather than sitting there, you know, just doing nothing in their cells. Yeah. It has a methodical healing effect, right? <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about how the KFACET Collective kind of works together on a project, like a new book. Like I know you told me that you literally see Philip maybe once a year. So you're not doing everything on location with him or anything like that. Um, Let's talk about quilts in an English village. So would it be you and Kaif and Liza on location? No, no. It's Kaif Kaif, myself and our photographer. We've worked the same photographer for the last... 40 books, I suppose. Amazing, amazing girl called Debbie Patterson. One of the reasons she can cope with Kate and I is she has a great sense of humour and she's got, she's a mum of three boys and now they're now just leaving home. But she, she's also very intelligent. She's intelligent and she works quick. And Kate and I work quick. We're instinctive, do it, get it done, move on. When we're designing in the studio, it's Kate and I in the studio and we work on... Um, all the designs together. He primarily has the lead, but he lasts for my second opinion. And then we'll guide that ship, you know, that ship will move forward in that direction. Um, and once we've got up the whole range of Liza's involvement, she sews several of the quilts that go in the book. We have another set, we have a sewing team here in the UK. And they sent the cut pieces or the instructions for the layout with a photograph, and they'll recut, sew, and write the instructions away from the studio. And they're based two and a half hours away from the studio. So we don't really see them, uh, although we will speak to them frequently. Um, not as much as Liza, but with them. But yeah, Liza sews maybe two or three quilts for the book, and the rest is done from. Uh, a fabulous uh, group of ladies that are based down in the Bristol area who we, um, who we adore. 
Okay. And I just heard you slap your legs and realized you might not be wearing any pants. (laughs) (laughs) Are you wearing shorts? I hope. I'm wearing shorts. No, this is my get up today. So I wanted to give the neighbors something to look at. Well, you are winning on color for sure. (laughs) You're a good example. Good example. Yeah. I I don't do beige. I know. No, it's so funny. I, I was just golfing yesterday. This is an aside, but I, I was golfing yesterday. I'm very new to golf. I'm not very good at it yet. But a friend of mine, she always wears beige and black and white and beige. And that's all she ever wears. And she just sort of commented that, oh, I need to put some color in my wardrobe. And then we went to the golf center after where you have dinner and she won the prize. And it was a huge beige vest. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh no. Oh, it, could no. Have, it could have been color. <laughs> oh, no. You used to tell her to look naked on the course. <laughs> I know. You just wear them together. That's true. That's true. Oh, my God. I mean, like, oh, yeah, look like she's wearing a, a, a biscuit. Um, yeah, a rich tea. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I want to chat with you about quilts in Wales that you're launching in Birmingham that you mentioned. So, you know, I know that you're from Wales. So do you think that that was part of the reason why you created this book with Cave? No, no. um, We're always looking for a lavish location to photograph our books. And it's always the um, conundrum of where we're going to photograph next, you know, and before COVID, we we would have shot a book in the UK, or and then done one abroad, overseas, like in Burano, Italy, or in Cinque Terre, Italy, or uh, Malta, and then the following year we're doing one back in the UK. And because of COVID, um, we couldn't travel, and we shot the book during COVID, um, but we also had to find a place with an incredible interior that would make the book in- intriguing. And we'd done the island. Um, we'd used several locations in, in England, and we just Googled and Googled. And neither of us had been to Powers Castle, which is in the north of England. It's four and a half hours' drive from London. But I got in the car, and we drove up there, and it was this incredible i'm from south wales in a small seaside town in between cardiff and swansea and it was all english speaking and so they, we didn't really feel the presence of a big welsh dragon on our back or anything you know like some people from Wales feel very staunch about being welsh and my the town that i came from because it was a tourist town there was a lot of interaction and i felt a lot of impressions from that and not um, a smaller, tight-knit community. Anyway, we end up finding this castle in in North Wales called Powers Castle, and it's part of the National Trust, um, 13th century. Mm. So we got in the car, drove up there, and um, we'd only seen images that were online, and the house looked intriguing because there was lots of um, murals and so forth, but until you actually get there and see it for yourself, um, drive and drive and drive through this amazing landscape uh, to this castle. It's like driving around a whirlwind of just ferns and suddenly you arrive at this. It looks like it's a castle that's been tipped upside down from a sand bucket. You know, oh, it's got yeah. sides and it sits on top of a hillock. Um, and it, it's very proud looking. It looks like a mohawk. 
from a distance. Anyway, um, or a, one for fruitcake because it's this really kind of deep, rich red brick. Um, and outside were this class of peacocks. And it was like, my gosh, this is so exotic. It was cold. And nobody else there. It was kind of like spooky because nobody else were there. And there were just these peacocks. It's like, where have you come from in Wales? I mean, I'm not in the Bahamas or where, but peacocks live. Um, anyway, they live there and and it's part of the club. Anyway, going through this small door, and you'll see in the book, there's this studded wooden door and there's this amusing picture of Kate putting up a quilt and there's me standing outside being a bit cheeky <laughs> and that picture manager in the book. Anyway, you go through that door and you enter this huge courtyard with this magnificent riling statue of a horse and and then there's these stairways that go up into the entrance of this castle. Um, and the first thing we see when we walk into the castle is this fantastic black and white tiled square floor, which is perfect for one of the quilts that we've done. And we did design a quilt to go on that floor because we'd been up prior to that, did a recce, saw that floor, Kate came home, designed a quilt to go with that floor. Wow. And then after we'd been around the house, we came back to London and we'd already designed the quilts. That's where I was going wrong with that with that answer. We'd already designed the, uh, the fabrics. Yeah. And Kate had already gotten certain ideas for layouts yeah. for the quilts. But they, we didn't really know the colorways or the color schemes that were going to go in the quilts. So once you'd seen like the black and white floor, um, the magnificent stairway, there was incredible murals floor to ceiling, um, like 20 foot high of these Riley figures and these, I uh, just beautiful. And so a lot of red, there's this whole bedroom that was red and gold. So there's a whole quilt that's designed around this red and gold bedroom. And um, yeah, and so after we'd seen the color mood of the castle and also saw how exciting the rooms would be, when we went up to do our recade the first time, it was all decorated up for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And then as, and they had gone to town decorating the castle for Christmas. And then COVID came. Nobody was allowed to go and see it. It was like, oh, it was just, it was just so depressing because we, we were there by like one of the very few that were uh, allowed to go in there. I mean, they showed us around it because they were thinking they were going to rent it to us. Well, <laughs> we were, uh, yeah, we're going to work that one out. But anyway, <laughs> we, when we went back with our quilts and Debbie, our photographer, we photographed in between. When the castle opened, we were we did our photo shoot before the people arrived. And then when after they left, we photographed after then. And it was, the photo, sh- uh, photo shoots take three days. So it's basically myself, Cave and Debbie. And I'm, I'm the donkey. I run around. <laughs> Because basically we'll find a place. Cave says, get me this quilt. I go get it, go back. Yeah. We dial it. Debbie takes the picture. I take it back. And then, so we have a center place. And it's a lot of work. But you know what? It's, as Cave says, we design the fabrics to do the books. Because mm-hmm. the books are really uh, showing people how to use the fabrics. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, the fabrics wouldn't be as successful. Fabrics can be quite intimidating. I mean, you know, these huge roses. I did one fabric, there were rows of dancing ladies, and it was called You Can Can. 
<laughs> and it grows can can dancers. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, well, if you cut it up, it looks like abstract flowers. But <laughs> as I think Philip calls me the funky guy, the, the zany funky guy in the collective. And yeah, something like that. Okay. So you mentioned the pandemic and I was wondering how did the pandemic affect the collective creatively during that time? Obviously travel came to a halt. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, it was astounding. It was the strangest thing because um, Kaif, myself, and Liza were all teaching on a cruise in the Caribbean, and there was all this. Um, we started hearing in the news about this thing in in China, and then we were on the cruise, and we started hearing that this cruise liner couldn't dock in this place because somebody come down with it, and we're like. Oop this could be a little bit serious. We didn't really think about that. And then, you know, it started getting a little bit more nervous. And um, anyway, we managed to get off. Nobody was really paying much attention to it on the ship. And we got home to England. Um, and four days later, we were on our way to, Kate and I take a walk every day after the end of the work, just to debrief and clear our heads, get some exercise. And we were on the way to our local Starbucks and we got there and there was a sign on the door saying it's closed. And we're like, this is unprecedented. Went to the store and the coffee shop next door, closed indefinitely. Yeah. And we were like, because Starbucks is closed, it must, this must be really serious. I mean, that was how, how naive we were, we were about it. And then yeah. got home and, and it, more and more it became reality and we realised we had our calendar run 16 months ahead and it was out of sensibility, you know, everything was stopped and closed. And I have to say, and now I'm looking at our calendar now for the next two years and I'm really nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really nervous because we are booked up so much. In, yeah. in the last two years, we would have never allowed ourselves the time to actually stop and, and do what we love doing. Uh, and focusing on ourselves, the industry speeded up. And so the craft industry, it was like when 9-11 happened, people turned to the home and the hearth, and the yarn industry went out of ballpark. It just boomed. Yeah. The same happened this time with the fabric industry. It bolted, and also the yarn industry. Um, but then we were dented by the ship that got blocked the Suez Canal. So yeah. then... The the fabric delay supply chain was all blocked, um, and so there was a lot more that went on behind the scenes than one would think. Yeah, yeah. But for us, it, it it didn't affect us at all. If anything, we had to speed up, and we have to do more um, presentations online like we're doing now. Yeah. So I guess it was kind of a luxury to get time together. But did you drive each other crazy? <laughs> Surprisingly, it drove us closer. I mean, it was oh, amazing. Nice. We were like two kittens in a pod, and it was. I cannot tell you how special it was. It was. It was profound. I, I couldn't have expected to. Have, we really folded into um, one another and respected one another's work, professional choice as well as personal choice, and it was. It was amazing, and I love to have that back. I don't know. I think if anything, our Working on personal relationship is stronger and there's much more appreciation for ourselves. But it, it's also, I think, it's just a path that we've woven 
and gone to this stage. Mm-hmm. If it had happened maybe 10 years into our life of knowing one another, it might have been different. But yeah. Yeah. So with the finished books, we only see all the best bits in the finished pages of the book. Um, so is everything perfect the first time? What if something doesn't work out? Like, do you, do you have a house full of remnants of past unsuccesses? <laughs> um, well, well, no, I'll tell you what happened with the lockdown was I said to Kate, okay, we, we need to make space. We live in this enormous three and a half story house. We literally have no more room. I mean, it, it is crazy. They it just bulging. And I said, okay, because we d- we design all our knitting on the needles, we literally sit down, we knit up a whole swatch for a back or a front to a point where we have a repeat and then we'll hand it out or, or whatever. And there's a lot that gets rejected. Unfortunately, with the knit world, the knit magazines um, pacify who they think they're trying to please in their market. Mm-hmm. And so we have to design for every four design, every when design that's in a magazine, we would have designed four swatches and the magazine will choose one design out of that four. Wow. It's it's a bit shocking. But anyway, and so they come back to us and then and, I, and we're like, we can never understand their thinking, but that's how it is. Um, and so we, we've saved all those swatches over case standing of well, how many, 60, 70 years, and then 30 years since I've been here. So I'm like, okay, if we've got to throw out some of these swatches. Oh, did no, that, that did that go over well? <laughs> no. So I, Kate doesn't do, Kate does not do tidying up. And so he went in, he went into this one room and found all his boxes and started going through them. And then he started making a patchwork of all the swatches that went together. And it was amazing, it was amazing beyond amazing about amazing to see all this work that had come from one person. I mean, one person's hand, and they're mind-blowing. So he's made, he's crocheted together over 30 of these, their wall hangings, blanket size, double bed, blanket size, wall hangings. And at the moment, I'm literally trying to find an establishment to have an exhibition of these blankets. I was just going to say, yeah, it sounds like it would be the perfect exhibition of the worst bits that never made it, but it would be brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of people recognize that have been that didn't make it into box, but there's a lot of trial pieces. Yeah. But every piece is a possibility. There's a little bit of something in every one of the swatches. They're really magnificent. It's just I have to find I have to find a museum somewhere. So any of your listeners know somewhere, yeah. um, don't. I don't want an idea of a place. You need to know somebody who knows yeah. that person that's going to make the decision. Otherwise, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, that sounds so good. And so, if any of your listeners are like, where can we see them? At the moment, they're not. They we've just given birth to the baby. They're not anywhere in. They're not in any books yet. Okay, now I always love to ask this question of every guest that I have on my show. On the day-to-day, what brings you joy? Waking up in the morning and knowing what I've got ahead of me. I love it. I love waking up early. Early mornings are the best. And then as soon as I wake up, I fill my head with all the things I've got to do. And I go, get out of it, get in the shower, have a cold shower. 
um, with myself. But I go upstairs, fresh fruit salad, um, my homemade muesli, and then into it, into it. That's what gives me joy. Yeah. You know what? A lot of people find strange. We have very few friends. We have very few. We have lots of friends. You're all our friends. But we are caves a hermit. Um, when we're home, we work, work, work. That is what we, it's not our work. It's our life. It's what we do. Um, other people have responsibilities. They're, they're our children. We don't have their, you know, other responsibilities. So we don't, we don't go out to dinner parties or weddings and stuff like that. We, we're quite boring. <laughs> but we stay home and do play with colour, a garden and cook. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about Brandon's uh, some memorable moments and some of the teaching and speaking that's coming up over the next few years. We'll be right back. Today's podcast is sponsored by Free Spirit Fabrics. Get to know the members of the K-Facet Collective, featuring fabric designs from K-Facet, Brandon Mabley, and Philip Jacobs. The collective launches a vibrant new range in spring and fall each year. From these, Kaif handpicks particular fabrics for his exciting quilt designs, which are featured in his patchwork and quilting books. Liza Lucy works collaboratively with Kaif on these publications and more by providing outstanding teaching skills and guidance on the practical aspects of quilt construction. Follow them at Kaif Facet Studio and at Brandon Mabley Designs. You can also check out the Kaif Facet Collective Facebook group. And just to add a little personal note here, I have really been loving this Facebook group. It's all about everything the K-Facet Collective is up to with loads of inspiring posts featuring K-Facet fabrics. And it's so inspiring. Our next sponsor for today is Oliso. The Oliso TG1600 Pro Plus Smart Iron has iTouch technology. Simply touch the handle and the iron lowers, ready to work. Take your hand off and the patented scorch guards lift the iron off the board, preventing scorches, burns, and tipping. It's not only safer, but it also saves time as well as your wrists. A 12-foot swivel cord, 12.7-ounce water tank, and ceramic flow sole plate are just a few of its new features. Pair it with the M2 Pro Mini Project Iron and your pressing needs are complete. Go to oliso.com slash collections slash smart dash irons or follow them at Oliso Home on Instagram. So we just have a few more questions. So what have been some really memorable moments over your career that have just really stuck out for you? Oh, people often ask, where would you return back to? And it's um, every place has its own significance. We're very fortunate with our travels. We're often going and working with people in that place and they make that place. Um, Japan is profound beyond profound. Um, And it just, the levels of respect and quality and um, artistic license. Um, And then the opposite of that, I love India for the primitiveness. Mm. I mean, Straight lines make me nervous. And we were just in Zurich in Switzerland, and their attention to detail made me sit upright. My shoulders were back because <laughs> I, I squeezed my butt cheeks together because I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to behave myself. You know, um, so every place. I, you know, part of the thing is because we're visual, we, t- we see the world as a visual um, playmate, and mm-hmm. we're drinking that in all the time, and it's, 
like we were going through the Grand Canyon. We did 10 days of white water rafting in the Grand Canyon. Wow. And and there was all these cliff edges on uh, shading, different close shades of colour. And it was one of the most incredible experiences. And Keith was talking about all these rock formations and he was saying to the, uh, the girl Ron Bowen, he's saying, look, that looks like a grand piano and that looks like somebody's nose. And she just looked over and said, don't you just see rocks? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, don't. You know, if, I, if I'm looking down on the pavement, I will see a Dalmatian dog. We're on. And that's, yeah. Well, is there anywhere in the world that's still kind of on your bucket list that you'd love to go to you've never been to before? Oh yeah, I'd love to go. I'd love to go to Chile. I'd love to go to um, Costa Rica. Um, I would like to go back to Iceland. Iceland is one of the most profound places. But if you're flying to Europe, stop over in in, in Iceland, be it winter or summer, but make sure you take your swimming costume. I mean, that's not a costume to go swimming. That means you're bikini. <laughs> um, because they have the most incredible south of pools. And yeah. it's one of, it's where people in Iceland go to be social. They don't go to pubs. They go to the, the south of baths. Yeah. And the landscape is just incredible, extreme. The highlands of Scotland is beautiful. I, I like extremes. I like unusual places. So um, take me there and I'll come with you. Okay. And you mentioned you have quite a lineup of travel and retreats and teaching with Keith coming up. So what are you looking forward to the most? Well, yesterday, we've just been invited to go back to South Korea, Japan, and somewhere else, and Dubai. Um, oh, where am I looking forward to going back to? Um, I've missed my North American fix. I love my North American friends. You know, they're such optimists. And it's like, sometimes the English forget to look up, whereas the North Americans don't look down. You know, it's just, it, it is yeah. happy. I take a little bit of something from everything, but not too much that I don't get affected by it or overwhelmed. Yeah. What was it like to be at the launch of the Coach X Cave collection at the New York Fashion Week? You, oh. you tended as creators, but it must have been incredible. That was incredible. That was pinch me stuff. One, we the hotel they were going to put us in was the Four Seasons. That changed. We didn't want to. We couldn't say didn't want us. We want to stay there an extra night. So they said, okay, we're going to put you in a different hotel. It's in a little druggy neighborhood, but it's a great hotel. And it turned out to be like one of the top boutique hotels. Plus, they gave us the penthouse, and we had penthouse for four days, and it was right. like. Oh my God! It was like I, you know, I felt like I was in Sex in the City. And it was <laughs> it was amazing, and it had a terrace and a yeah. And then um, to go and hang out with um, Michael B. Jordan, who is just such a great guy, and I went away from being an actor, and I felt really felt for him when the photographers were at him, and it gave me a real, gave me a little bit of an idea of what it's like to be really, really, really famous. Mm-hmm. It is like. You know, you you just yeah, poor guy. Anyway, but it was a very very nice guy. Um, sitting across our customers from the catwalk was Anna Winter, um, head of Vogue, and with her sunglasses, of course, and her cronies, uh, and they were sitting giving us their eyeball. And of course, I couldn't sit still, so I was like, you know what, I'm never going to be here again. 
So I was up out of my seat, going around, introducing myself to everybody. Keith was just sat there like a naughty schoolboy in his chair. And I'm like, hell, I'm never coming back here. Let me explain the most of it. So I was going up to all the all the supermodels and all the famous five. And yeah, well, I made the most, I milked it. So um, and what, what was weird about the uh, the fashion being in that world, it happened so fast. It happened within six months. Wow. And that whole collection. And it was, we didn't really know too much about the collection, except we had to give approval for what they want to use as inspiration. Mm-hmm. They did their own shapes and, uh, and they did recoloring, which we gave permission on. And, and we got Philip's approval too. I know a lot of people online had a bit of a kickoff on that one um, because a lot of his designs got used, but it was the Cave Collective that got used, not just yeah. Cave. And um, and seeing the models come down the catwalk for the first time is amazing. A lot of the garments we actually didn't get to see after we were beaded and embroidered, and it was I don't know what happened to those, but a lot of the audience, a lot of the coach market is out in Asia. Mm-hmm. And so um, I imagine the really flamboyant pieces went up to Asia where there's unlimited money. But it, it was amazing. And I was so proud for Keith. I, I mean, I really, I felt like the bubbles in his champagne for him. Oh, was, that's great. For me, it was, it was just a really, it was an honor for Keith. Recognition for all the work that he's done throughout these years. I and mean, it's amazing that that chap is 85 this December. And yeah. he's it doesn't stop. It's yeah, amazing. it's incredible. And if you're listening right now and you want to go and see that collection that walked down the catwalk in New York, you can go to Kay Facet's website. So it's kayfacet.com and you just click on gallery and you can find it all there. And there's actually a bag in that collection as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Just gorgeous. Okay. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was that the show in Iceland, I heard that 5% of the population attended that exhibition. Yeah. Well, the, it's pretty sweet. The uh, president of the country came and opened the exhibition and um, Kate said, I'm honoured that you've come to open the show. And she said, what do you mean? You've had royalty open your exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> it was really humbling. Um, yeah, it was. Um, well, given that there's 250,000 or something population for the country, it was it was amazing. And, you know, they the Nordic people work with their hands, um, and it's um, very special. We, we always pinch ourselves at the, the attendance records on, I think, the last the exhibition that we had at, um, in Bath three years back, they had 75,000 people. Wow. Um, but what's nice is we don't think about, oh, how wonderful. We think how nice that we might have been able to affect a small portion of those people visiting the show. Um, they might might have left thinking, I'd like to have a go and drive myself. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and so when you and Keith travel together to teach, what's the sort of, what's the aha moment that you like to reach for your students? What do you really want to try to impart on them the most? Oh, in the workshop, everybody works on a design, vertical design wall. Um, They experience in the same way that Keith and I Experience when we go through a, working out a colorway on a design structure. So everybody in the class will have the whole, will have the same design structure. They choose their own colors. We help them put colors into that arrangement 
of their choice and will uh, and sometimes Kate will have a different opinion to my opinion but that's not a bad thing because it helps people think about what they really like and so for me it's not what they achieve in the workshop it's what they're going away thinking about afterwards I always think that we're just like a pebble being dropped in the water and it's the ripples that go out and out and out yeah. that um that's what I I think and I often think the next day is what are those people thinking about what they went through the day before because it is exhausting it is tiring it is mentally like saturating because you you have to deal with you got to turn off your brain you got to turn you got to just do it and yeah. get this physical and that's very hard for a lot of people we have 30 people in the class so at the end of the day, we'll have 30 different interpretations of the same structure, be it knit. Well, I, I do the knitting classes on my own, but with the patch classes, it's Kate and myself. We'll have 30 different interpretations, same structure. And it is so empowering because everyone will be uniquely different yeah. down to that person's color choice. There's nothing, nothing, nothing more um, rewarding you just I think Cave has an incredible way of words and he'll go around and just and talk about each and every piece and the hairs just stand up in your legs and the ladies just forget all about the trials and tribulations they've just gone through yeah and I think everyone has their own specific different kind of wall around them when it comes to color and so it's almost like you both are just giving the quilter permission to just play and with color and enjoy and sort of have some freedom, right? Yeah. And get over the inhibitions. Yeah. I mean, it, it's also seeing 30 different, 29 different interpretations other than their own. Yeah. And they, they're able to see any color can be used. It just depends on where you put it and how you put it. Yeah. And then you're able to see, well, I like this, I don't like that. And that's not a bad thing. It's yeah. about strengthening your own color choice. Okay. So as we move towards the end of the podcast, I always like to do something called the lightning round Robin. It's a series of rapid fire questions and it's super fun. So are you ready? Bam. Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite part of the day? Oh, lunchtime. When I get, I go and make lunch for the whole studio. Okay. And it's nice to see that you still have that love for cooking. Um, okay. And when you are inspired in the world by something, how do you capture that? Oh, I'm a photographer. So I'm taking photographs all the time. Okay. And as a creator, do you have any little collections of any kind? Oh, yeah. I collect lots of different things. If you ask Kate, he would say shoes, but don't listen to him. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I, you know, I collect, I collect hats, I collect clothes, I collect fabric, I collect. I, I'm a collector. <laughs> yeah. How do you keep it all together? Like, how do you manage your work-life balance? Uh, there isn't such a thing. My life's my work, and I don't live without my life. It, does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And the last question is, personally, what is next for you creatively? At the moment, I'm doing new colorways on fabrics that will have already been out in the market. I'm giving them new colors, which give them a new life. And then that gives me ideas for new possibilities. Then I'm excited about how they will work with the other designs in the collective. But I don't know. I won't know until they come out. So it's, 
I'm constantly being fed by this amazing trip. It's like, though it works so fast and so far ahead. It's just yeah. Yeah. Okay, but we're great. always we're always working on about eight things at once anyway. Yeah. Well, thank you for braving the lightning round, Robin. That was well done. I'm shocked. <laughs> you did a great job. Okay. So you have mentioned your website at brandonmabley.com where we can find everything that you have to offer, but let's talk about where people can follow you on social media. How can they connect with you? They can find me on Instagram, Brandon Mabley. Um, they can find me on Facebook, Brandon Mabley Designs. Okay. Um, and I've just started doing TikTok. Some people have that and some people don't. And that's called the Color Guys 2, number two, because there's two of us. And so, and I say that because one of our books was called Nessing with the Color Guys. Yeah. A lot of people refer to Kate and myself as the Color Guys. Okay, great. Today's prize giveaway is an assortment of fantastic designs by Brandon Mabley in various color stories. It's 11 fat quarters in a fat quarter bundle valued at over $40 US. And of course, you get a copy of Kay Facet's Quilts in an English Village. So get yourself on the Quilter on Fire newsletter by going to the homepage at quilteronfire.com. Scroll down to the bottom, enter your email. So every Tuesday, you get the Tuesday podcast preview and you see the link to sign up for the giveaways right there. So a huge thank you goes out to Free Spirit Fabrics. Now, as we wrap up, Brandon, what do you want listeners to take away most from our conversation today? The answer <laughs> to that question is, remember to stand back from your work as you're working on whatever you are. Because remember, we all look better from a distance. Yeah. And so will your work. Oh, that's great advice. Brandon, I just loved having you on the show. Thank you for sharing the best bits of your story with me. I, I'm absolutely charmed you asked me. So I hope I haven't taught your ear off. And no, it's I been great. Have a wonderful day in Canada. So that was my show with Brandon Mabley of the K Facet Collective. And although he's clearly tied to this wonderful collective in his creative journey, he certainly stands on his own with a sharp eye for style and innovative design. And I loved sharing his story with you. Now, are you loving this podcast? Take a moment right now to think of a friend who might love it too. I'd be so thrilled if you'd share this podcast or write a review on your podcast app. The kindest thing you can do to support a creator is to introduce them to your friends. Are you suffering from FOMO or fear of missing out because I've traveled to the Birmingham show without you? Well, I promise I'll bring you the best bits of my England travel story on the last Tuesday of August, and there are more travel destinations coming up, such as Morocco, France, and a quilting cruise with Stitch in Heaven from Texas to the Caribbean. Go to quilteronfire.com slash events to find out more. Thank you for listening to the Quilter on Fire podcast. Until next time, dream big and have fun in the studio with the Quilter on Fire.